Okay. Uh, most welcome to the LSE. My name is Eric Berghoff. I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs. Uh, I'm delighted, and I think that's why you're here as well, to have uh, Hassan Damluji here to talk about a new, and, and I, having read it this weekend, very saying very exciting book on uh, the responsible globalist. So I'm, I told you I'm, I'm directing an institute of global affairs at a university that is possibly the most global university in the world. And still, you know, global, globalist right now is not a word that you, you want to use uh, too often. Uh, it has become almost derogatory. And, and I think your book is very much about how to turn that argument around. And um, I think you're in for a treat. It's, um, it's a combination of sort of introspection, I think, and also from a lot of uh, experience. And it comes from your Arab background. And, and um, you will see that uh, a lot of the thinking has been, I think, influenced by that sense of um, um, an Arab world. So without further ado, I'm going to give you the floor. And then we will have um, a, a discussion afterwards with the audience. And maybe you now have a chance to, to ask you a few questions as well. This is part of the LSE Festival 2020 shape the world. So it's, it was uh, it's following on previous festivals, which was about the world disorder. Now we're trying to shape the world. And I, so Hassan, please help us shape the world. Thank you. Audio is clear? Great. My great-grandfather, Farouk al-Damaluji, was born in around 1890 in Mosul, uh, what is now northern Iraq. Back then, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. And growing up, he spoke Arabic as well as Turkish and also Kurdish. And if you were to ask him what or who are the Arabs, he would have pointed to people quite unlike himself. To him and to people across the Middle East and North Africa, to be an Arab was a way of life led by nomadic camel and goat herders. Arabs lived in tribes. Farouk was not a member of any tribe. And in many ways, to be an Arab was the opposite of what he was as a well-to-do city dweller. But over the course of his life, there was a fundamental reorganization of identity in what is now called the Arab world. People who spoke some recognizable or even unrecognizable version of the Arabic language came to see themselves as Arabs. Not only were they Arabs, but in being Arabs, they were a nation. That meant that however divided they might be now, in some meaningful way, they belonged together. They had a common ancient spirit and a single self-governing destiny. Now, Farouk and his brothers, born at the very edge of the vast expanse of the Arab world, were clearly marginal cases in the definition of Arabness, with their dubiously fair complexions and their uncomfortably fluent Turkish. But despite that, or perhaps precisely because of that, they embraced this newfound identity with gusto, spending their lives promoting the Arab cause on the battlefield as well as in government. Others took much longer to convince. Egyptians, very few of whom were nomadic herders, felt rather more like Egyptians than Arabs for most of Farouk's life. 
But that too began to change. And by the time of his death in 1957, less than 70 years after he was born into a world with no hint of Arab nationalism, it was the single most powerful political identity in the Middle East and North Africa. Moroccans were Arabs, Algerians were Arabs, Libyans were Arabs, Egyptians were passionately Arab, as were Iraqis, Syrians, Palestinians, Lebanese, and those from the Arabian Gulf, amongst whose newly formed states, two bore and still bear the name Arab in their title. The political project of Arab nationalism to unite those millions of people in a single state utterly failed. But Arab identity has not gone away. I am only half Iraqi, so if you believe the myth of Arab nationalism, I'm half Arab. But wherever I go, from Morocco to Oman, the people I meet that I've never met before treat me as if in some meaningful way I am one of them. It's an incredibly powerful bond. How did that happen? How did hundreds of millions of people, black and white, Christian, Muslim and Jew, spread across two continents and some of the most inhospitable terrain in the world, united only by a language which they speak in such different forms that most of the time they can't understand each other, how did they come to see themselves as a single people over the space of less than 100 years? How and why did their political project, the dream of Arab unity, fail so that their nation, is now beset by more wars than any other region, even those with no myth of common identity. Even more remarkably, how did Germans during the 19th century go from being politically divided into 400 separate statelets and principalities, and so divided culturally that Johann Kaspar Riesbeck mused in 1783 that the Germans' pride and feelings for the fatherland relate solely to that part of Germany where they are born. The rest of their countrymen are as much strangers to them as are all foreigners. How did Germany go from that to being a single nation-state with a seemingly unshakable belief in its own unity? How did India prove Sir John Strachey so wrong? After spending most of his life in the country, he wrote in 1888, this is the first and most essential thing to learn about India, that there is not and never was any sort of unity, physical, political, social, or religious. No Indian nation, no people of India, it must not be supposed that such bonds of union can in any way lead towards the growth of a single Indian nationality. And later on, Winston Churchill famously agreed with him. And they had a point, right? India was and remains a remarkable hodgepodge of languages, religions, cultures, and people. Yet it did become a nation. Not the most cohesive nation out there. Not a nation whose bonds of trust were strong enough to prevent sectarian conflict. Or massive inequality. But nevertheless, one that allowed for democracy. And after the terrible violence of its formation through partition, has not had a civil war. And two-thirds of Indians, when asked, say that they feel very close to their country. So Strachey was wrong. Today, India contains as many people as the entire world did when he made that comment in 1888. It's a planet-sized nation. A planet-sized nation. How do you create a planet-sized nation? Today, 
globalists have run out of ideas. We're terrified of the assaults on global cooperation presented by Donald Trump pulling out of the climate accords or the intercontinental ballistic missile agreement with Russia. Many of us are terrified by Brexit. An area of the Amazon the size of Manhattan is being cut down every day and the global system, instead of preventing this tragedy, seems to be falling apart. So we're busy trying to preserve the status quo. But the status quo won't cut it. Our opponents have an appealing, if quixotic, vision of returning their scared constituents to an imagined golden age that never really existed. What's our vision? What is globalism? And I use that term unapologetically to refer to the belief that the world ought to work together. What is globalism for? I want to make the claim that it should be seen as a project to build a planet-sized nation. We've done it before, and we can do it again. Some of our attempts to build massive national communities have succeeded at least in part, like India, and others have utterly failed, like the dream of Arab nationalism that my great-grandfather and many others wanted to see. We can learn from these experiences to build a more successful, more united world. But this time, it should be a truly global nation. Now, no nation has ever been built without enemies at the gate. And this nation would include all humans. But we, too, have enemies at the gate. Climate change, which affects us all. Nuclear war, from which no one would be safe. The threat of pandemic diseases. To prevent these disasters, we need international institutions that work better. But institutions cannot work well unless they sit on a society of trust. And trust in society depends on the myth of belonging. And no myth has been more powerful in that regard than the myth of the nation. Its basic premise is that we, the people, are all in it together, that we should be governed in our interests by people who represent us, and that we have a common history, will, and destiny. States have been around for thousands of years, but the idea of the nation is quite new. Only states that feel also like nations have succeeded in creating good governance, democracy, and welfare states. And to the extent that states fail or are weak, it is almost always in connection to the extent to which they do not feel like cohesive national communities. So the nation is the best formulation we've come up with yet to get people to trust each other just enough to make institutions function tolerably well. What do the experiences of nation building teach us if we are to think of the world as a nation in waiting? Firstly, it suggests that the seemingly utopian vision that I've set out is less impossible than it might seem. In every place before the idea of the nation could take hold, important changes took place in society that laid the foundation for its success. Steam trains knitted communities together, shrinking the distance between cities that had been days apart by horse and carriage and could now be reached in hours. Education became widespread, bringing a common set of knowledge and a common language to disparate communities that had previously tell, told their own local stories in their own local dialects. Armies of bureaucrats and scholars trained in the newly minted national languages used trains and other means to traverse the land. And newspapers brought a single, synchronously unfolding national story to every town and village, 
on a weekly or even daily basis. These were the changes that allowed people to view themselves as a cohesive nation. And those changes are now operating globally. Last year, there were 4 billion international air passenger journeys. Now, even if we allow an average of six flights per passenger, that means that last year, 10% of all humans left their country on a plane. In, a recent, in recent times, education has gone from being a preserve of the relatively rich to being a globally universal constant. Over 95% of all primary school-aged children are now in school. And educational curricula, while still being national, are compared increasingly globally and refined on a global basis. There are now millions of people who, like me, work in some kind of global institution or bureaucracy. And the English language has gone from being merely common to truly universal. One quarter of the world's population now speaks basic English, including every single one of the 9.4 million Chinese students who sit the Gaokao University entrance exams every year. Now, if one quarter isn't enough, then soon improvements in translation technology promise a world in which it doesn't matter whether or not you speak the same language, because anyone with a smartphone will be able to participate in the same global conversation. Now, when these changes occurred in limited geographical areas in the last 200 years, human identity was radically transformed. So it would be unreasonable to expect that these changes happening on a global plane would also not radically transform identity. And that transformation is already happening. Half of all humans watched the World Cup last year. The Me Too movement is the first ever social movement to cross the Great Firewall into China and take root there, as well as it did on every continent. All this means that the stage is now set for a new globalist identity to emerge. The second lesson of nation building is that the changes I just mentioned are not enough on their own. Building a successful national community has always required political leadership with a powerful narrative about who we are, where we are going, how this new world is going to preserve what people hold most dear, but also how it's going to improve their lives. Where the narrative has not been sufficiently inclusive, nations have either fallen apart or been built at terrible cost. Where there is no clear vision of where we are going, there is no momentum for change. Where large sections of the people feel that this new order will undermine what they value most, they've fought it tooth and nail. But where the nation has been seen as a path to improve people's lives, it has transformed identities everywhere. Currently, we are applying none of these lessons effectively as we try to build a global community. Now, amazingly, Half of all humans, when surveyed, in countries from the USA to Turkey to China to Brazil, half of all humans surveyed say that they feel more like a citizen of the world than of their country. That is an incredible statistic. And the number is growing. And if that seems surprising in the era of Brexit and Trump, then consider that most people don't live in Europe or North America. In India, China, Nigeria, and the Philippines, a growing majority say they feel like global citizens. But half is not enough. Far too many people are unconvinced. And for the most powerful country in the world to be led by a man who would say in the United Nations Secretary General, uh, General Assembly last year, 
we reject the ideology of globalism. That is a problem. White ethno-nationalists across the rich world are turning their backs on global cooperation. And so are hundreds of millions of Muslims who see globalization as a colonial project to undermine them. All of these people have turned their backs on globalist identity because it has not been sufficiently inclusive, because it has not protected what they hold most dear, and because it has not convinced them that it will improve their lives. That is what we need to change by setting out a new globalist credo. The third lesson of nation building is that where the foundations have been laid and the political leadership is in place, the project to build a nation is a very long-term project which can last a century. It took Italian nationalists 100 years to build a single Italian nation from the eight different states into which Italy was divided at the beginning of the 19th century. And that was the same 100-year period that it took German nationalists to go from Caspar Riesbeck's day to unification. The Indian nation-building project is over 100 years in, but it is greatly advanced. The project to unite the peoples of Europe is half a century old, and it is half complete. This long period of campaigning to create a nation is inevitably filled by lows, by reversals of fortune, by moments when it seems impossible to achieve. You can, even, you can think, for example, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire sending its troops into Italy in the mid-19th century and seeming to end forever any hopes of Italian unity. Now it feels like a blip in the historical record, but it didn't at the time when the troops came in. Some moments, like the United States Civil War, become the crises through which the nation is born. Before the United States Civil War, Americans didn't use the word nation very much. They still felt more like a collection of states, much like Europe does today. So sometimes these moments are the ones that bring us together. The global community that we know was birthed through a terrible global war. And we stand at another one of those junctures today, where the project to bring people together globally feels like under unstoppable attack. And to many people, including many of the esteemed and knowledgeable people I interviewed for my book, these challenges indicate that it's over. The globalist dream is dead. But the history of nation building tells us that it need not be so. The jury is still out on whether this is a blip or the beginning of the end. And it'll be decided by what we do in the coming years. So what should we do in the coming years? If globalism is a century-long project to build a global nation, what can we do now to turn the ship around and start again down that path. I propose six principles, learning the lessons of nation building in the past that responsible globalists should espouse and campaign for to make the success of global cooperation. The first principle is that we must leave no one out. Many of us say that we're global citizens or that we want more international cooperation, but we simultaneously use the words West and Western as if it, they refer to a global in-group the global we, and others can at best hope to be westernized, a pernicious term that normally implies that intelligence, liberal attitudes, and proficiency in English are all coterminous and are foreign add-ons to an essentially barbarous people. When there is a problem, globalist newspapers like The Economist tell us that the West should respond, 
the West should do this, the West should do that. Don't other countries also have a duty to act on the global stage, or are they just bit part, bit part players? When I asked a large number of people what the term West meant to them, they told me it was variously white people, democracies, rich countries, and countries that have been through the Enlightenment. Actual quote. So being Western is simultaneously a racial category and a form of enlightenment. We've built a global identity that is not inclusive. No wonder it is not universally liked. Farming was invented in the Middle East, China, West Africa, and Central America. Writing was invented in Iraq. Printing and gunpowder were invented in China. But we see these things as global goods, the inheritance of mankind. Sure, one country was the first to have farming, another the first to have democracy, yet another the first to use certain forms of modern medicine. But we can and should see these things as global goods, now that they are globally prevalent, and certainly not the preserve of white people. Instead of Western democracy and Western medicine, how about global democracy and modern medicine? Half of all people living in democracies live in India. 90% of all vaccines are made in India. More Indians say they are global citizens than the entire population of Europe and America combined. So we need to ditch the idea of Westerners as the global in-group and start talking more about humans. And thankfully, we already are. The book Sapiens, which many of you I'm sure will have read, has a subtitle, A Brief History of Humankind. That's the kind of book we're reading these days, not just here at the LSE. It spent months at the top of the bestseller list in the US, and in Europe, in China, in India, and in other countries. We as humans have an increasing appetite to think about ourselves as humans. So we need to build on this and tell more truly inclusive stories. The second principle is that we need to be clear about what this nation, this globalism is for, and also what or whom it is against. For many people, globalism is about pushing for a world of open borders. For others, it is about unfettered free trade. But these are not shared visions. In 2015, every single country that's a member of the United Nations, 193 states, signed up to a set of 17 goals with 160 and more specific targets to be met by 2030, known as the Sustainable Development Goals or Global Goals. It is the first time in history that every state on the planet has agreed to the same vision. Now that is a truly remarkable and unprecedented feat. So that vision of ending poverty and hunger, of gender equality, of fighting climate change, that is what we should be pushing for. Of course, not everyone is on board, but everyone's government signed up to those goals. So that is the place to start. What we must avoid at all costs is creating a global community that burnishes its identity by turning on some part of itself. One need only look to what's happening today in Myanmar, in other countries as well, to see examples of that happening. And globally, Muslims, due to their association in the minds of many people in every country with acts of terrorism, risk being turned into an outgroup that must be exterminated. We must find ways of shifting that very human desire to coalesce against an enemy, to focus on our real enemies, which are not human. They are climate change, they are pandemic disease and nuclear war. 
Now, for most of human history, we have humanized the wild forces against which we battle, creating a god of war, a goddess of discord, a god of tempests. And in India today, there is a goddess associated with HIV. Across the world, storms are given names because meteorologists realized that the public reacted with far more urgency to a threat with a human name. So we need to bring up our children with humanized embodiments of the real threats that we face. In the school that I helped found in North London, kids learn about the values of the school through cartoon characters which embody those values, whether scholarship or teamwork and so on. It's amazing to see how the kids respond to personifications of the values in which uh, they are being taught. If we had globally agreed humanized symbols for the threats that we face, which children learn from the youngest age, we could produce a generation that felt able to unite against those enemies and not each other. The third principle is that we must defend the nation state. That may seem counterintuitive as part of our project for a more united world, but the experience of the US and India, as well as the half-completed project to unite Europeans, is that vast nations can only be stitched together peacefully if the states and identities that reside within them are not attempted to be undermined and erased. Now, Steve Bannon says, the fight today is between those who want to undermine the nation state and those who see it as a jewel to be polished. And of course, he thinks that he and the ethno-nationalists driving an anti-globalist agenda see the nation state as a jewel to be polished. And we, the globalists, are undermining the nation state. He needs to be proven wrong. The very success of the nation, which makes it such a good candidate for an identity that can unite the world, means that people care deeply about their nation-state identities. I told you that two-thirds of Indians feel very close to their country. Globally, 87% of people feel that they are very close to their country. They're not going to give up that identity easily. And what's more, for low-skilled people from rich countries, their passport is by far the most valuable thing they own. They will never sign up to a vision that looks like robbing them of their most pr prized possession. So nation states must continue. And that's all well and good. I am a Londoner long before I am a Briton. I do feel that people from Newcastle have less in common with me than other Londoners. And they feel the same about me. And that's OK. What's important is that we also feel that our common British identity has some value, so that I don't mind my taxes paying for their health care, and they don't mind their taxes paying for my child's education. And that if I lose an election because the people from Newcastle voted that way, that's OK, because we're all British. But we still have different identities. Each layer of identity does not require the ones underneath to be erased. But furthermore, the world would be far too complex to even begin to try and govern in a centralized way. So nation states is the primary units of accountability, of government, of decision making, of democracy, should be here for the long term. All we have to do is ensure that they pursue their legitimate interest without harming each other. And protecting nation states from each other is treating them as a jewel to be polished. Leaving them to the mercy of bullies is actually to undermine them. So we need to prove that Steve Bannon is right but that he is the one undermining nation states by trying to undo the global order that protects them. And we are the ones who see nation states as a jewel to be polished. 
The fourth principle springs from the previous one. It is that if you love mobility, let it go. Protecting nation-state identities means letting nation-states maintain democratic control over immigration. That is the only way to bring people with us on a long-term journey where gradually foreigners seem less like foreigners because we are all one nation. This cannot be forced from above. The forces I have mentioned, education, mobility, everyone watching the World Cup due to social media, global bureaucracy, they are laying the foundations for more open societies. And when you add to that the global convergence, which is reducing the economic gap, that makes migrants seem, at the present time, from poorer countries such a threat. As that gap reduces, over the long term, globalists can win the argument that we shouldn't fear immigration. But the single biggest factor that is driving people in rich countries to reject international cooperation is the feeling that they do not have control over the pace of change. What is the single totem issue that allows Steve Bannon to get people elected, that allows Marine Le Pen to win votes, that allows Viktor Orban to stay in power, that allows Brexit to be voted through. It is this issue. It may sound paradoxical, but the way to increase migration is to slow it down. In 2019, the G7 country whose people say they are most in favor of immigration is Britain. So we need to discard any undemocratic tendencies, many of which have been on ugly display in recent years. People who vote immigra against immigration are not, on the whole, racists. But the surest way to make them really loathe foreigners is to make them feel like they have no control and the elites of their societies despise them. The human brain responds very badly to that. So if you love mobility, let it go. Let's focus on ensuring we take a good number of refugees, because that is a moral obligation. And let's push for student visas to be unrestricted. Foreign students are a huge export industry to countries like this, and they don't cause as much concern for anti-immigration voters, which is why even a leader with a platform like Boris Johnson currently has felt able the other day to ease the restrictions on students. But for the rest, let's concentrate on building a more united world that works better for people and short-term reductions in immigration will not undo that good work. The fifth principle is that the rich must pay to play. Viewing the world as a nation in waiting, the tax system approximates pre-revolution France. Put simply, the nobles don't pay tax. From 1789, the French overthrew what they saw as an illegitimate system where the burden of taxation felt on those least able to pay. The United States was also born in part due to a protest against unfair taxation. The inequality produced by globalization, and in particular the fact that it has allowed companies and individuals to acquire unprecedented levels of wealth and earn that wealth everywhere, but pay tax nowhere, is threatening another revolution, but this time a global one. This led Pankash Mishra to describe the current situation we're in as a global civil war. We can either channel that anger to make a fairer world, or we can allow it to break the system apart. Now, I've said that nation states should only be constrained by the imperative not to harm each other. But your decision to set taxes at zero and allow secrecy as to who owns what does harm my country in a globalized economy. 
Countries should, of course, be allowed to set their own tax rates, but three things should not be allowed. Firstly, secrecy over the ownership of assets should not be allowed. That is an invitation for my wealthy citizens to break my laws by using your jurisdiction to hide their assets. Secondly, the global free-for-all should not be allowed, whereby each multinational company can move its profits around at the click of a button to decide that, in fact, magically they have been earned in that country over there with zero tax. We need a globally agreed formula to determine, based on sales, the number of employees, and other factors, which share of profits should be reported in each jurisdiction. The United States has such a system to determine what portion of profits should be allocated to each state. Each state then has its own corporation tax, but they can't just decide that all their profits should be payable in low-tax Delaware. So we need that system globally. But thirdly, a zero wealth tax on millionaires should not be allowed. Wealthy people whose assets are mostly in financial instruments rely for their wealth on the rule of law and infrastructure that taxpayers fund through their governments in every country. So it, not, it should not be acceptable for the people who profit from the infrastructure that the taxpayers are providing to choose to live in a place that doesn't tax them on that wealth. This is an invitation for all of my wealthy residents to move to your country while still benefiting from the taxes that they no longer pay. So global transparency on asset ownership, a globally agreed formula for allocating profits between jurisdictions, and a globally agreed minimum level for a millionaire's wealth tax. These would stop countries from engaging in the current destructive race to the bottom that has seen the tax contributions of the wealthiest people and the largest corporations crash whilst their wealth and profits have skyrocketed. This is what is driving anger around globalism. Most importantly, these changes would send out some important messages about what globalism is about. No longer would it be seen as a conspiracy, a conspiracy of the rich to get richer while inequality increases. No longer would it be seen as a way of stopping the cooperation that we need to prevent the unintended consequences of globalization. On the contrary, it would be seen as a way of empowering countries to tax their own citizens. And it would increase the tax revenues available to nation states to spend on services for the poorest people who have suffered the most and who are most anti-globalization and most anti-immigration. The final principle is that the rules-based system needs better rules. If our tax regime looks like pre-revolution France, then the global political system looks like France of the Middle Ages. A hegemonic power has control of much of the landmass, but the duchies and principalities within it are at best an uneasy set of alliances, and other areas have broken away completely. The regime is kept in place by occasional bouts of unpredictable violence to establish the balance of power with little regard for the rule of law. Now, that system, such as it is, with five permanent members of the UN Security Council, is an improvement on having no system at all. We have built, in the UN and other institutions, a global talking shop of unprecedented scale, meaning that when we are all agreed, we can pull together and solve startlingly complex problems. But when it comes to addressing breaches of international law, our system is badly broken. Internationalists often bemoan attacks on the rules-based system, but the only consistent rule in international affairs is that the powerful act with impunity and the weak are normally left to fend for themselves. This will not change 
until the most powerful countries see it as in their own self-interest to establish an international rule of law. Now, the reason why they should is because history shows us that hegemony never lasts forever. In the 18th century, China and India represented the lion's share of the world's economy and populations and were each ruled by dynasties with many generations of unbroken succession. They felt like the world's bullies. But within 100 years, India had been totally colonized and China humiliated by the opium wars. Now, today, Britain has long since fallen off its perch and US hegemony is sure not to last forever. And yet, there is bipartisan agreement across the United States political system that it should cling to hegemony for as long as possible. Democrat and Republican don't believe the manufactured disagreements that you hear. The penny has not yet dropped that creating a truly rules-based system while they are dominant would be the best prote protection America could provide for itself for the period that will follow. It may take another unspeakable war before American government, Russian government, the Chinese government, and others see it as in their self-interest to submit to a truly fairer system. But we should do whatever we can in our power to convince them of that without waiting for the war first, and we should be prepared with the answers to what such a fairer system should look like. Now, in fact, the global system needs remarkably few tweaks. I've already argued that we do not need an invasive global government to take decisions for us. The global system is there to protect countries from each other. So climate change, refugee resettlement, and taxation all need new treaties, enforceable by economic sanctions in the worst case. All of these are essentially issues of economics, especially when you consider that refugee resettlement could be done by another country with a, with a payment from the country whose share it was. And so it doesn't even have to be an immigration issue. These are all economic issues, and economic pressure would be enough for compliance. A country that refused to live up to its climate change obligations and was sanctioned would quickly see no interest in continuing to flout those rules. But on issues of war and peace, we simply need to change the way that decisions are made. Instead of a 15-member Security Council with five permanent vetoes, every UN member state should have a vote. The vote should be weighted by population and economy, thus including an element of democracy but also realpolitik. And an 80% threshold of weighted votes for decision-making would ensure that extreme action could only be taken when the world was almost completely united, and yet no country on its own would have a veto. Now, that would make decision-making difficult. You can imagine that America and a few allies could veto anything. China and a few allies could veto anything. This wouldn't prevent war. But imagine how much more power an international decision would have if every single country had voted on it and 80% weighted majority of votes had gone for it. Now, occasionally, we do have Security Council resolutions. But the most that we can say is that five countries didn't veto it, and in total it was a vote of 15. So where decisions were made, the legitimacy of those decisions would be vastly increased. And the system would allow, over time, for a global politics with more power. Now, the changes I'm calling for are not easy. But they are also not impossible. They will certainly not happen overnight. But the political consensus does change when powerful arguments are consistently made. And today, climate change is 
providing that powerful argument, that burning platform which is gradually changing the possibilities for international action. People have got used to a nuclear armed world, and perhaps they are overconfident that a nuclear war is a remote possibility, but climate change is pulling the rug from underneath the argument that each country can do fine just on its own. On the other hand, climate change may create hundreds of millions of refugees in the coming decades, accelerating the inward turn of politics and creating an ugly battle for survival. So it's really up to us to decide how this turns out. If we can start talking about ourselves more as humans than Westerners, if we can focus on the global goals rather than our pet projects, and on our real, though non-human, enemies, if we can protect the things that people hold most dear, their passports and their communities, and fix the greatest injustices, immunity from tax, and the unfairness of the global junta by which we are governed, then we can slowly build a global nation. Now, perhaps my vision will never be realized, just like my great-grandfather Farouk. When he died in 1957, Arab nationalism was at its peak. Iraq was on the point of unifying with Jordan, which also included the West Bank back then. Syria and Egypt were on the point of uniting. But in the decade that followed, it was derailed by failed politics and failed attempts at unification and failed wars. Now it is one of history's great failed projects. The same, too, may happen to global cooperation. In building a global community, there is no guarantee of success. But I want to argue to you today that it is worth a try. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. And, and um, I don't think I was exaggerating um, when I said that it, we were in for a treat. Of course, it's, uh, it's a manifesto. And uh, as I said initially that it's, um, I think, starts in a way where you ended in the Arab world and the Arab nationalists. So, you know, in your narrative, there is a tension between, on the one hand, the nationalist project and the institutions. And, and the same, you ended now talking about the global institutions that you need to... to to promote a globalist approach. If you take this to, to the Arab project, what was it the institutions that failed, mm. or was it the, 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 the form of nationalism? What, what was the reason for the failure? Yeah, how long have you got? Um, but it's really a case study in how to do it all wrong. And, and the most well-known dictum amongst Arabs is that the war with Israel in 1967 is what derailed Arab nationalism because it gave the lie to the political narrative that said, we are strong, this project is succeeding. And so that idea of a vision that you can actually deliver on and being able to show that you can improve people's lives, I think defeat to this tiny country uh, in 1967 was certainly one of the things that in terms of the public narrative uh, changed people's minds. And then other, okay, well, let's, let us have a go. Uh, we, we believe that we need to go back to Islam. And, and so other people uh, come with their own narratives of how to be successful and gain traction because this one is seen to have 
to have failed in the same way that the crash of 2008 pulled away, I think, a lot of the narrative of the end of history and this is a, a, an all-conquering um, uh, uh, Washington consensus. But there were many other mistakes as well. The way that political union happened was also rushed. Um, you know, uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser was felt pushed into unifying with Syria by his own uh, uh, governments, um, and it was done too quickly. It, it, unifying two countries that aren't even neighbours uh, is a very complex project that wasn't done well. So, so there were many different failures um, that we could go into, but I think the signal failure to live up to its own narrative, especially through the war with Israel, is what people remember. You, you said, and, and there's probably a lot of truth to that, that when you look at the, the global project, it was World War II that really created that and created the conditions. And if you read about that period and about the discussions and about the aspirations of people, it's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, they had lived through two global catastrophes, the, the Great Depression on top of that, and they really wanted to, to start. And it was, of course, those who, who won, had won the war who were sitting down and, and discussing this new world order. But there was a, a willingness. You, you said we, we might need another war, but what, what, um, what could create the, the mm. conditions for that kind of reflection? Yeah, it's interesting. And of course, the ideology of lots of separate nations, nationalism a la the 1930s was the ideology that that war took the rug from under. And a, new, and a new, more internationalist one came through. You could argue that the 2008 crisis is what threatens to take away the more globalist consensus we had after 1945. But it's interesting, it really was a cross-partisan moment. For example, in the US, a history that not just now, but then had a, a, a nation rather with a history of isolationism. 80% of Americans supported the UN and wanted a global federation. Uh, whilst uh, FDR was negotiating for the UN, of course he died just before the conference through which it was birthed, but while he was negotiating for it as the president, the person who had lost the presidential election, Wendell Wilkie, was flying around the world also advocating for a global government. So it was an amazing moment. How do you create another amazing moment? I certainly would never say we need a war, because that implies that the suffering that would happen would be worth it. Uh, it, it may not happen before then, um, I, I, I think climate change is, as I indicated at the end, the thing that right now is focusing minds more than ever and driving a global identity. Two things. One, think of Greta Thunberg, whose movement of let's all have school strikes. I mean, this is uniting kids globally without any idea of I'm from this country, you're from that country. Uh, the other, uh, a, a data point, um, in surveys of countries across the world, including America, including Russia, including Turkey, the majority of people in every country say that for issues like climate, global bodies should have enforcement powers. That is an incredibly globalist sentiment that's already been espoused as soon as you in a survey, raise climate as the issue. It clicks. If you had asked them a different question, they would say, no, 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 we want national sovereignty. But once you raise climate, people say, yeah, we've got to get together as a world. So I think that uh, is the burning platform we currently have. It was quite interesting because you, you, you say this in the book too and you, you, you repeated it now that actually in many developing countries and emerging economies, the sense of being a global citizen is actually stronger in, than in many uh, advanced economies or 
But, but, the, but the, the, there was one statistic that came out over the, the weekend. There was this YouGov poll on attitudes towards uh, climate change. And, and there was um, a, the question was, to what extent is this man-made? Uh, to what extent is there really climate change happening? And what was striking was that actually climate denial was much stronger in the advanced world than in, in the developing world. Is that, is that consistent with... It's very interesting. So I, I would want to qualify the statement that globalist identity is stronger in, uh, in developing countries. I don't think that's how I'd put it, because the situation is more nuanced than that. A majority of people in, in many of those countries um, say that they feel like they're global citizens. But what does that mean to them? Yeah, that's what, I... what does it mean to be a global citizen to a poor Indian person who's lived in a village their whole life, never left, isn't very educated, doesn't speak English? Do they have the same meaning when they answer that survey as, as you and I? And I think the truth is that people who answer that survey and say, I feel like a global citizen in a, a, a country like the UK, um, it's about a quarter, 20% to a quarter say that. They represent normally very mobile, very educated people who are, feel involved in global issues. And those people exist in countries like India. Um, many of them study at LSE. Um, they're involved in the same global conversation. But that's a very small proportion of Indians. So when you say that 65% of Indians say they're global citizens, you're including that person in the village. So to them, the reason they're excited about global identity is because it, it feels like an optimistic vision of the future, which they do feel will offer them possibilities, unlike the people in this country who have turned away from it. They may have a cousin who's traveled, even if they don't. There may be a factory that foreign investment has brought down the road. They may have watched uh, uh, you know, videos on YouTube that have made them interested in other countries. But to say that their globalist identity is as deep as someone who flies around the world every, every weekend is, is probably not true. And one uh, uh, statistic um, brings that out. When you ask people, should my country follow its own interests, even at the risk, at risk of conflict, an amazingly high proportion of people in those countries say yes, even though the majority said they were global citizens. So being a global citizen does not necessarily mean I don't think that we should be up for conflict. And I think the reason is, is many developing countries, they see that their legitimate interests have been held down over centuries, potentially, by colonialism and other factors not being the strong countries in the world. And they're prepared to rise in this new world, even at the risk of conflict. They, they have a global vision, but we shouldn't be uh, overly um, uh, narrow in how we assume that really plays out. Okay. Questions? Has he provoked you? Please. And please introduce yourself. Um, I'm uh, Tim Lancaster. Wait, wait, wait for the microphone. Hi. I'm uh, Tim Lancaster. Yeah. I'm Tim Lancaster. I was president of... Corpus Christi College, where Hassan was an undergraduate. Uh, delighted to uh, hear your talk, and I applaud your crusade in favor of globalism. Um, but there's a conundrum which I find hard to get around, and that is how do you reconcile your plea for globalism with your statement that the nation state has to be protected or indeed even strengthened, because globalism actually requires 
a willingness to share sovereignty, share power, share resources. And that suggests that the nation state diminishes. Uh, not necessarily. Denmark is a, has a great sense of national identity and yet is prepared to share resources and power. But large countries on the whole are not. I don't know the answer. Maybe you do. The, yeah, I think this is the it's a very basic tension in your book also. So please. This is the tension of operating in a society. Do I as an individual protect my interests most by living in a society with no rules or in a society with rules? I would argue that living in the United Kingdom where there's many rules protects me as an individual more than living in a place where anyone can come up and kill me. Now, to the bully, it always feels like a constraint to have rules. You see, Steve Bannon says the nation state is a jewel to be polished. The, what he wants to polish is the United States' ability to do whatever it wants with no constraints on it. But the whole point of society is to say that if I let you do whatever you want, you're diminishing other people's freedom far more than you're exercising your own. And the net effect is not uh, freedom. Um, I write in the book that you know, people who talk about freedom need to make sure that they distinguish between freedom and chaos. When in America invaded the... I, I sound like I'm against America, but I'm really not. Um, uh, it, it is, of course, the example of the global hegemon that we have to look at uh, when we're talking about um, you know, hegemony. But um, many countries do the same. But my country happened to be invaded by... Uh, one of the countries that I'm a citizen of, happened to be uh, invaded by Britain and America. And the, the narrative at the time was freedom. It was called Operation Iraqi Freedom. But the people who lived in Iraq found that they weren't free to walk down the street without the threat of kidnap. They found that they weren't free to express themselves. Sure, there was freedom of opinion according to the law, but uh, any militia could come and shoot you in the head if you published a newspaper article they didn't agree with. So this at the level of society. When you, when, I, mean, I know your question, of course, was about, was about countries. When was the golden age of the nation states? When were nations so powerful? Because one of the golden age narratives that people have is that we want to return to the golden age of when nation states weren't constrained by, to use your term, giving up their sovereignty. So if you go through history, you find that uh, uh, before um, the 1990, the Cold War and the two spheres of influence that were heavily policed massively constrained the freedom of many nation states. If you go back before 1945, the majority of the world lived under colonial rule. If you go back before then, and you go back before then, you cannot find me a time in history that nation states have had more freedom than they do now. It is in the post-1990, this world where supposedly sovereignty has been lost, that actually nation states have sovereignty. And furthermore, we haven't given up the sovereignty that we think we have. And Brexit's a good example. Some people think Brexit's a good idea and some people think Brexit's a bad idea. But no one, not even Jean-Claude Juncker, has questioned that Britain has the right to leave the European Union. We haven't given up our sovereignty. We've chosen to collaborate. And so, um, and, and so, and so in sum, I think that there's a big fallacy in the argument that seems so simple, that seems such a, a tension, if not a paradox, in my argument. But in fact, if you don't believe that a rules-based system protects the individual, you don't believe in society.
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Heide Rida. I work for TDR Capital, a private equity fund, and sit on the board of Nesta, uh, the Innovation Foundation. Um, I love the title, <laughs> and I wonder what we can learn from nationalism on the marketing and the comm side. Because if we look at the new nationalists, whether it's in the, the Brexiteers or Trump, or whether it's the more extreme <laughs> forms of that polarizing message like ISIS, they've got one thing in common, which is that they're very good at getting their message out marketing-wise, which allows them to capture a huge share of market, a share of voice, even if they've got a really small share of market, so to speak. Right? So ISIS managing to get 16-year-old girls from Manchester, 70-year-old Uyghurs from China, even Apple dreams of reaching such a wide audience. The same is true for Trump, Brexiteers, etc. So if you look at how they do that and play on that marketing message that awakens the, the visceral, whatever, tribalism or, or fears of people, my question is what can we learn from that on how to do the same but on the positive side around unity, love, uh, and, and, and really reach the 99% of people who believe in these values but who now just get maybe 1% of the share of voice while the, the negative side gets all the rest. What are your thoughts on what we can do there and, and how to do that structurally rather than just hope on a couple of uh, advocates for peace, etc., to do it on a very grassroots way? Thank you. Yeah. I th <laughs> well, this is what the book is about. Yeah, it, it, it is. Read the book to find out. But... <laughs> I think you make a good point about, about marketing. I mean, I don't use the word marketing. So that's a different lens through which to look at it. But you're obviously referring to some of the very uh, powerful videos that ISIS has put out or the way that the uh, Vote Leave campaign targeted very effectively using Facebook. So those marketing strategies are definitely things you can learn from at the micro level. But I think the, the, the single most powerful thing that these movements have is a vision. And we have lost our vision because what we're trying to do is defend the status quo. Um, I have to refer to the statement, the end of history, because no uh, lecture or book or article is allowed since 1990 to not mention Francis Fukuyama's uh, comment in 19, that, that, that history had ended. You know, we believe, you know we, we, we're trying to cling on to the plateau we felt we had reached, the nirvana we felt we had reached in the 90s. And that's not a vision, especially not if you feel that particular plateau is not a very good one for you. If you feel you're suffering, the status quo is not a great marketing strategy. So we need a vision. I have proposed some kind of vision. I'm certainly uh, not proposing it's the only possible one. But what is global cooperation about? You know, Islamic State is very clear what it's about. Arab nationalism was clear, clear what it's about. They succeeded each other as powerful narratives in the Arab world because one was seen not to work out, and now people are trying another one. But what's consistent in these narratives that succeed is it's not let's plod along as usual. It's, it's the vision. So I think that's what I'm trying to talk about. But you make a good point to say that actually it goes deeper than that. How do you communicate that vision? How at the micro level? How do we get better at Facebook? And, and all of those things is also part of it. One other. Hi, my name is Jake Takia. I'm doing A-level politics, so happily unemployed. Um, you talk about the global 
uh, global democracy and how you want all countries to have a veto and to get this 80% majority. But how do you persuade countries to go into this without having a veto, such as America, who mm. won't, would even, where Trump won't even believe in global warming mm. or climate change? How do you persuade them without using the, uh, the kind of bargaining chip that is a veto? Yeah. So to give you a little bit more detail on, on the proposal, because obviously I had to skirt over it, the idea is, is as follows. Um, a global minimum wealth tax that I mentioned in the tax section would, would specify your expected contribution to global development. So right now, donors are meant to give 0.7% of GNI to aid. But who's a donor? And at what point do you become poor enough, not rich enough, that maybe it should only be 0.5%? Or it's very arbitrary, and it separates the world into donors and recipients in a very, frankly, post-colonial way. So based on your wealth, you have an expected contribution to the international system that's actually paid for, the, paid for by the millionaires who are doing well off it, not the poor Ohio or um, black country voter who feels that they owe nothing to Africa because they're suffering. So that's number one. Number two is uh, your GDP. And number three is your population. So are you contributing to the UN system without which you don't pay to play? Number two, your economy, and number three, your, um, your population. That would give America a hugely oversized role in the world because its wealth is even more unusually large than its GDP. So I'm proposing a system that recognizes, and wealth is also a legacy of uh, previous uh, uh, success uh, because it builds up over time. So you're recognizing the legacy of power as well as current GDP, as well as population. And naturally, China would be a huge uh, a player because it has just a vast population as well as a, a decently middle-income economy. So, so you are recognizing uh, these things. The truth is that according to the system I'm proposing, if the whole world voted against America, it could ignore that because it has the largest military spend and try and do whatever it wanted anyway. But that's the situation we have now. The invasion of Iraq did not have UN Security Council of approval, and it happened anyway. Now, just to be clear that I'm not anti-American, let me mention some other cases. Ukraine. Um, so, so the situation we have now is that we have a system that supposedly has legitimate decision-making. The bullies can break it if they, really, if they really want to, but with at least a bad PR associated with it. But even that legitimate decision-making is not legitimate. Can we start by fixing that and having a more legitimate decision-making that could build the platform for those PR disasters of breaking the rules to eventually add up to a desire not to? So it's a long-term project. I'm not under any illusions. And, and how would you even persuade America or other countries like this one, which clings to its veto even though its power is, is waned, how would you convince them to do it? Maybe only because a, a war convinces people they should, potentially. Um, or potentially common sense uh, ruling. But don't forget, 80% of Americans said they wanted a federal global government in 1945. Now, yes, that was after a war, but these things are possible. Um, I mean, my job isn't to create the, the, the war, it's to be there ready with the answer when the, uh, you know, once we've won the case.
hi, I'm Joshua Misiadis, uh, no one important. Uh, obviously, the uh, globalist uh, society which proposes a huge political shift, yet um, for these politicians, from whom do you think this pressure onto the politicians will come from? Mm. Uh, social group, whatever, etc. Well, I hope it starts with a core of the people in this room and emanates outward. But, but, it, but, but seriously, I think um, you know, there are already uh, a large uh, array of uh, advocacy organizations who are out there in one way or another arguing for a better world. Um, and for example, there's one called Global Citizen, which every uh, year at the United Nations, and it's going to happen in... 10 days' time, as well as in other places, organize these huge um, festivals where famous musicians like Beyonce or Coldplay or whatever play music, uh, but also politicians step on stage and say, these are my commitments towards the global goals. I'm just giving you one example of how people are already trying to activate young people, not young people. Um, Greenpeace is a famous uh, organization that's been around for decades trying to highlight issues that are particular to the environment. And, and now we have a whole new generation of teenagers who are out striking outside schools. So I think the energy is, if not enough, then it's there, it's building. And climate is one of the issues. I hope that global poverty, which we feel very able to ignore because it doesn't affect us day to day, but I hope that is also something that uh, people uh, care about. I think, like I said before, what we're missing is that narrative of what it's all about. Increasingly, climate change is providing that narrative. And, and success will be when it starts really breaking through into politics. It, 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 the world is far more globalist than the politicians are right now. Um, so, uh, you know, the, as I mentioned, the majority of people in every country saying they want global institutions to have enforcement powers on climate. There's not a single country in the world that's actually pushing for that at the UN. So we're yet to translate into really changing politics. Uh, that'll take time. There are people who are a bit more pushing in that direction, um, but it'll take time. Here in the front row, here. Um, so, putting war aside... Yes, introduce yourself. Oh, sorry. Hi, I'm Shardy. Yeah. Um, I work in advertising. Um, so I'm the bad, big bad evil. Um, so, no, we need your skills. So aside from war, because in, it, when you talk about common, common enemy and a common benefit, a shared vision, war obviously unites people around the world because... No one's going to benefit from more lives being lost, right? It gets to a point where it becomes absurd. If we, climate change is still not at the point where people are accepting it as being the big common enemy. So, how do you combat fear and trust? How do you build trust and combat fear in situations that aren't a life or death scenario to be able to get people to well, be able to collaborate and be together? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, similar to the last one, it was definitely these are about how do you make it happen, and, and I think, I think you know that's clearly the challenge. Um, there's obviously many books and that have been written about how do you create social change, and rather than recite one of those, maybe just to you know offer a couple of thoughts. A political leadership is hugely important. 
I talked a bunch about India just because it is a planet-sized nation, and that makes it a really interesting case study for me. When India was formed, it had a set of nationalist leaders that eventually took hold of the states but had been campaigning during British rule for a long time, who were mostly intellectuals, and some of them startlingly uh, bright uh, and intellectually um, productive. And many of them, although not all, really pushed for this idea that we are all Indians. And, you know, Gandhi was famous for uh, upsetting a lot of Hindus by saying, look, we're Muslims as well. We're all Indians. And I think the amazing uh, success of India over the last, uh, since 1948, has in large part been come down to that legacy which uh, set up the country as one where, despite the fact that there were all these divisions, there was a narrative from the top that people did buy into. Um, and India right now doesn't look like that. We hope that it gets back on track. But right now, there are lots of narratives that say, actually, India is just for one type of Indian, and, and so on. So is that because Indians have fundamentally changed or economics or politics have fundamentally changed? Maybe, but I think a lot of it's down to the political leadership um, and, and what kind of vision are you setting out? So uh, that's, that's my contribution to your question, but clearly it requires more than just that. There's many, many different things. Um, maybe another thought, which links also to the previous question. A guy called Cass Sunstein, who wrote the book Nudge, his latest book, um, which just came out, is called How Change Happens, I believe. And he says that one of the, the way you make change happen is when you realize that people have falsified preferences. And what falsified preferences are is that we all pretend that we're basically going along with the status quo because, uh, and how we're meant to think. Because it, there's a great cost in a group to say, actually, I'm a little bit different. We're seeing that with gender. We've taken away the idea in many places that you really ought to be like this. And suddenly, these preferences for something else, which had been falsified all along by people who insisted they were macho men or girly girls, are starting to be revealed. So what you have to do to create change is create the conditions for those falsified preferences to be revealed. And I believe, you know, in, in, linked to the previous uh, question, that there, are, there is more preference than we're capitalizing on for global cooperation. But we need to uncover those falsified preferences. Um, and, and, and that is the work of skillful leadership, I believe. Um, hi there. So my name's Leah. Um, I work in the civil service. Um, so I just wanted to have a... Have a, a basically your reflections um, on, on what we can sort of maybe learn from examples of working towards more of a globalized um, society that is sort of already underway. So particularly thinking about um, the European Union, um, and if we look at countries such as um, France under Macron, um, you know, sort of trying to pursue a policy of closer integration, better together, you know, there are obviously um, um, policies now sort of circulating around sort of about, you know, European armies and... Right. Um, sort of the EU's uh, sort of closer integration. Um, 
And obviously we've got countries such as the UK and ourselves and sort of removed ourselves from that situation. And there are arguments on, not only on the, on the right, but also on the left as well. So you've got people like you know, Corbyn and, uh, and you know, extreme left who are very anti sort of closer EU uh, integration. So I was just wondering sort of what your reflection uh, would be on sort of the EU as sort of a, a model of a more globalised society mm. and what you think that we could maybe learn from that and what you think maybe is a, is a positive um, of that policy or that we could maybe do differently. Mm. Yeah, the EU is a model. I mean, the problem with the EU is it's difficult to look back on it and say whether it's a success or a failure. And therefore, it's, it, it's not a perfect experiment. You know, if, if you want to get data from an experiment you don't stop it halfway through and say therefore this is what you know this is the the, the answer so of course we should be learning from it but i think that's the key challenge um, we'll, we'll know in 50 years time whether it was a hundred year failure or whether it was a hundred year success we're definitely at an interesting point um, but there have been many interesting points that have not led to its collapse i mean one way you could compare uh, america uh, the european union with india is to say that india was birthed through a painful separation with its western part as well as some of its eastern part um and it didn't stop um the rest of it unifying actually it created more unity because pakistan and bangladesh have always been those enemies that india has unified against so uh, the idea that Brexit means the end of the European Union, I think, is, is far-fetched. And in fact, I think surveys show that people are more, uh, have, have put down their uh, skepticism for the EU, at least for now, in response to Brexit over there on the continent. So, so that's, that's one reflection. I think another really interesting comparison uh, between the EU and, and, and a nation-building project is the United States. The United States, and India wasn't like this, the United States really began as a collection of, of independent states who agreed to come together. And um, uh, the Articles of Confederation, which was the first document that they agreed to, uh, the first constitution, if you like, actually had them really operating like the EU in the sense that each state would vote as a state rather than a Congress where, yeah, I'm actually from Georgia and you're from Illinois, but it's all about the, how we vote as congressmen and we're in different parties. It was really the states had opinions and uh, uh, votes as states. And over time, um, the situation moved much more to one that feels like a nation, as I mentioned, really birthed through the Civil War, an attempt to break up that was quashed violently, and the myth that actually really we're one people and belong together uh, came along. So again, with the EU, uh, it's not predicting war, but this idea that the path from a collection of states that are just about agreeing to rub along with no common currency and no banking union uh, that America had um, can, can, to a nation is one that is very choppy uh, over time. Um, it definitely rings true. I think thinking about the EU as a, as a nation-building project will give you lots and lots of micro-reflections along the way that are useful, which I won't try and lay out all of them now, but I do think it's an interesting one. Um, and for me, the key lesson is to do this peacefully, you've got, to, you've got to reflect the identities people have. And the EU has done it peacefully. And the reason they've done it peacefully is because it's this painful process. It feels so painful and so clunky. But that's actually how you do it peacefully. The other way is just you invade and you conquer and you establish a state. If you're not going to go that way, you've got to go through this really clunky process, which through crisis 
leads to a realization that, oh, we, we actually better have a border, or we better have a, a banking union, and so on. Yes. Hi there, I'm William Guise, economist. So I do share your ideas on the globalism. So I'm from Brazil. How we could bring the idea to get more support, as a global support, for example, for the environment, for the forest, coming from a country that has 500 years experience for colonialism. How do we can fight back this idea that have a global support, not gonna get rid of the nationalism or some sovereignty? Yeah, it's a really interesting case. I mean, with the Amazon, as well as with climate change overall, you do have to understand the pushback in terms of their narrative that people like Bolsonaro have when they say, well, this global cooperation to stop us cutting down the Amazon is just colonialism. Why? Well, firstly, because Brazil, as you mentioned, had hundreds of years of colonialism, so we haven't set ourselves up for a great conversation about intervening in Brazil. But also, don't forget, this country was completely covered in forest. Continental Europe, completely covered in forest. What we've done is we've chopped down all of our forests. There were lions in this country. We've killed all our lions. We've burned fossil fuels. We've created a very nice, wealthy economy, thank you very much. But actually, because of that, the world is doomed. And so it's really important that you don't cut down your forest and you don't kill your lions. And you definitely don't uh, attain the wealth level that we have. That's not a great argument. So I do uh, certainly empathize with people who are, who are convinced by that narrative, although it's, it's a shame. I think one of the mistakes as well, although the timing was too politically convenient, was for Macron to raise at the G7. You know, in, in, in global political fora, you have obviously the General Assembly of the United Nations, which is all countries, but what they agree on has no, has no force. So you have the Secretary, uh, the Security Council of the United Nations, then you have the G7 and you have the G20. Now, of all those forums, the one that is the most post-colonial is white people who all used to have empires. It's the G7. So it wasn't a great forum either. You know, all the Brazilians I've met think that the rainforest being shut down is a tragedy. I think, you know, hopefully these political cycles go back again. But for now, I do think that a vision of globalism that feels less like Western imperialism is going to help. Can you speak up closer, uh, closer to the mouth? Okay, uh, my name is Jimena Perez. Uh, I'm from Colombia and I'm studying political science. My question is, in your idea of globalization, how does minorities look like? Mm. Uh, how, do, how do they get to be represented? Mm. And how do we keep them? It's a, very, it's a very good question. I'm not sure if that mic's working well, but let me just repeat the question in case it wasn't clear. So the question was, in this globalized world, how do you protect minorities uh, from ceasing to exist, their cultures being wiped out, we all end up speaking English and being the same, right? 
it's an interesting, it's an interesting way of putting the same challenge which seemed much less reasonable when I said it earlier. When I said earlier, I said, I made you think about white ethno-nationalists in Europe. And I said, we've got to protect the nation state. And I mentioned Steve Bannon. And you felt, ooh, we don't want to protect the nation state because the Dutch uh, or whoever you know, have no right to their own identity as an individual nation. They should just get along with globalism. But when you say, when you, when you mention minorities and you feel like, well, maybe we're talking about Amazonian tribes or maybe we're talking about, I don't know, uh, a country that suffered under colonialism but just about kept its language, will it lose its language now? Suddenly, the argument that we should protect the individual identities and states that exist within the world as we build a global, uh, a, 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 a closer global unity, it feels like a better argument, right? So the first thing is, we, we, it, this cannot be a process that is forced. People need to be able to voluntarily hang on to whatever parts of their culture they want to. The truth is, over the last 100 years, the world has radically changed. Mostly voluntarily, people have chosen to speak one of the few number of global languages, especially increasingly English. People have chosen to live lives that look very like the lives we live in this country. That's okay too. One thing we don't want to do is create a situation where, in addition to not being allowed to chop down their forest and not being allowed to kill their lions, they're also not allowed to uh, use the creature comforts we like because we like visiting countries that have nice little villages. So to the extent that the world becoming more similar is a choice, that's okay. But I do have something to say about cultural appropriation. One of the ways in which we try and maintain cultures is by shooting down what we call cultural appropriation, right? The problem with that is that the implication is that not only should those cultures be maintained, but they should be kept in their box. And the truth is, voluntarily, a global mainstream culture is emerging. That is happening. And so if only Arabs are allowed to make hummus, or only Chinese people, many of them as there are, are allowed to wear uh, Chinese-style dresses, then what you're doing is you're saying, you're not allowed into global mainstream culture. And that, I think, is the biggest threat. That we have created this idea of the West, which is global, a conflation between white people, global, democracies better than you and all of these things and then the others who ultimately are probably doomed to be wiped out but can't we just preserve them a little bit along the way i would rather that caribbean music chinese style dresses hummus and whatever else is part of the global conversation now the way that cultural products are used and shared has always been and will always continue to be shaped by the power relations between people. We can't remove that. We can fight against it. For example, Elvis Presley made millions for himself and his also non-black uh, uh, team and agent and all of those people around him from music that had been developed by African-Americans uh, who made very little money out of it. That was an injustice. 
historical one. And you all know the ones in the newspapers about this is an injustice uh, because it's um, appropriation. Fine, you know, let's try and minimize that. But let's also be careful not to keep cultures in their boxes because then you're robbing them from the chance of actually contributing to what is an increasingly global culture. We have one last question back there. Unfortunately, there. Hi, um, Hajj. I'm just doing my uh, master's at LSE. Um, just a continuation on that. Um, our, the, wo the world is still very much colonized. Uh, we haven't really gone through decolonization in the sense, yes, um, the colonized countries have now political sovereignty, but our knowledge, um, the way we think, uh, beauty, standards, all of this is still very much colonized. Um, so if you're talking about a globalized world, um, in the sense that we need to you know, join, we need to be one, um, how do you manage to do that if we are still in the position of, I mean, much of the world is still very much colonized, especially when you talk about uh, cultural appropriation. Um, making white people making hummus is not cultural appropriation. What is cultural appropriation is a white person having dreadlocks and being, not being seen as um, ghetto, not being seen as primitive, um, not being seen as less than someone whose culture has been taken. So I don't think, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that um, in, a, in, a, in a period of white supremacy, in a period of colonization, uh, people of color are still very much oppressed. Um, so how do we move forward from that oppression? It's a great question. It's a very good question. And I think, if I may, uh, put a chapeau on some of what you've said, it's to say the problem isn't sharing culture. The problem is the relationships of power that exist within society. It's okay that you wear dreadlocks, but why is there an assumption I'm a criminal and there isn't an assumption you're a criminal? That is about the power relations in society, which I, I spoke to a little bit, um, which is to say, we have to be realistic. I can't, it, you know, if I presented a completely utopian vision, it would, wouldn't be one that related to the, to the world. And the truth is that even voluntarily, when you give people cultural options, you allow them to opt in to beauty standards, which you mentioned, for example, in human society, relationships of power and wealth will have an implication on the choices that people make. And so uh, that's not going to go away overnight. Of course, the particular colonial powers who uh, have shaped a lot of the world over the last 500 years are losing economic power relative to other countries and are losing cultural prestige relative to other countries. You can think of K-pop. You know, it's impossible to imagine Korea, which, by the way, was a, a, a recipient of foreign aid as recently as the 1960s, setting a global agenda on pop music back then. And now it has. So, these things are changing, but that doesn't mean that the world's going to get fairer necessarily. Maybe we'll just have a, a Chinese-led uh, uh, world, as you described, of colonization. So the key is to undermine those power relations. And although, you know, again, books and books have been written about this, I just point back to the point I made before about 
this term Western? Because for me, that's where I've chosen to focus the few words that I have uh, on this debate, although there are many other elements. Friedrich Hayek wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom in 1943, an incredibly influential book in economics. And it's one of the books that I read as I was researching this. And I was struck by the term he used when he said civilized nations. Now, anyone who's read books written in the 1940s or 50s or 30s or 20s will recognize that phrase, civilized nations. That was how they were referred to. And if you were to update that book and republish it in 2019, the main difference you'd have to do is just change that to the West. That's what the West means. It's an updated version of the term that used to be civilized nations, and before that was probably something more offensive. So to me, at least part of the work of undoing this idea that globalization is a colonial process is to remove this idea that the West is us, the people who should act, the civilization that ultimately everyone will end up following. Now, that's not easy, but we can at least start talking about it in that way, and I think start down that road. Thank you very much. I think you have. Well, you have spoken about the importance of, of vision and the importance, of course, of language and of, of uh, our spelling out that vision and, and uh, convincing people. And I think you can hear from the strength of the uh, uh, applause that you, you catch on to something. And I think those of you who call themselves globalists or entertain the idea of calling yourself globalists have maybe a little bit more spring in your step after, after uh, reading your book and, and uh, listening to you. So thank you very much. Let me just plug one thing, because you mentioned uh, uh, India and you mentioned um, Gandhi. And, and uh, we will have a, a series on uh, Gandhi and uh, Dr. Ambedkar uh, during the fall, or during the autumn, and there will be an uh, exhibit in the uh, auditorium, or in the atrium in the old building on uh, Gandhi and Ambedkar. Uh, and of course, they had both visions, but they also had methods and, 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 uh, made, it happen. and made it happen. And, and I think it's that connection also that, that uh, we need. So thank you again very much.